Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning in one way or another, you can find the book of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament as we look at a message from the sixth verse through the rest of the chapter titled Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of a Faith that Stands. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So, this has been a heavy week for many of us, and for me, as I have contemplated this passage of Scripture, I'm preaching from the issues at hand, the current mandate handed down to the state of Iowa, which is pretty much in keeping with most of the other states and what they've been experiencing for a longer period of time. Thinking about our church's decision and the leadership decision to temporarily mandate or, or require masks, and some of the wonderful responses we have received, many wonderful response, uh, responses, some you know, not so wonderful, but and how Satan desires to sidetrack God's people. These are all the things that I've been contemplating, and many more. Spending a lot of time in prayer, and weeping. Yes, I've actually wept over this one. And pleading that God would give me wisdom in how I address, first and foremost, the scripture, the truth of God, and as it applies to the moment. I did what any pastor preparing a sermon like this would do. I took a shower. As I went to the shower, I looked at the shower, I saw my I saw the first, I'm asking God for wisdom, and I look at the shower, and I see this product of my wife's. And I see it's called True Science. And the first thought that came to my mind was, science needs an adjective? I guess in our day to day, I guess it does. I stand before you today, first as a Christian, then as a minister of the gospel, as a husband. As a father, as a grandfather, and yes, as a patriot. I'm a citizen of heaven holding an earthly visa. That's what I am. I'm a gospel-centered man facing a man-centered world. And just the other day, one of the elders reminded me that I should put forth once again what I said 10 months ago at the onset of this. When those other restrictions, we quarantined and all of that, everybody's ire was starting to get up, and the Lord gave me a thought, and I give it to you again. The law of love trumps the law of liberty. I'd like you to memorize that. By the way, it's not just, an, it's not just a, a, a truism. It is a biblical truism. The Apostle Paul addressing those liberty-flaunting Corinthians, said these interesting words. Look what he said. I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have a right to do anything, again, implied, you say, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. That's probably worth staring at for a while, don't you think? This, what you're looking at, is God's definitive 
answer to the oft-asked question, why are we requiring mask wearing if the government has not, or rather has made us exempt from the mandate? There's your answer. Here's how another translation puts it. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So I have a son who does not live in this area. He's the only one of our, of our many kids that lives away. He lives half a country away. And I don't see him often. Uh, so, but I think about him all the time. I think about him all the time. And I often wonder, how's he doing today? Is he feeling good? Where's he going? What's he up to? Has he eluded this virus? Would he tell me if he, he hadn't? Is he growing or ebbing in his walk with Jesus? Lots of things on my mind when I don't get to see somebody I love. And then he calls or texts and it's all good. <laughs> the Apostle Paul had birthed many spiritual children in the city of Thessalonica. He has had an amazing ministry with them. And then he was run out of town. Remember that? And he is genuinely heart-wrenched, heart-concerned for them. How are they doing? You want to know how, how concerned he was? Where we left off last week, the very, in the, the very end of the fifth verse of chapter 3, says, he says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Do you know what the tempter does? He tempts. Paul and the Thessalonians had, had been, they were experiencing real and real-time suffering and affliction, pressure. Listen, trials put us on the razor's edge of our faith, revealing both our strengths and our weaknesses. James tells us that there's a, quote, crown of life for those of us who are true followers of Jesus and we endure in a Christ-like way that awaits us. The Apostle Paul is away from these individuals he's led to Christ, and he's wondering, how are they doing? Are they enduring? Are they, are they, are they persevering in their faith? Imagine the joy that he would have when Timothy returns, having gone back and then comes back and tells Paul, well, let's, let's see what he tells him. Chapter 3, verse 6. But now, just, just, just try to imagine Paul reading this for the first time with all of his concerns. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith, and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and, and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And then my favorite part of this section. For now we live. If you have an NIV, it says we really live. If you are standing fast. Or firm in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy 
we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That eighth verse just comes alive in that passage, doesn't it? Paul is saying that the report of Timothy of how the Thessalonians were doing literally brought life to him. That word life, uh, zao, it means I'm alive. And he's obviously not just talking about his physical life, right? It's a good idea to bring life to your spiritual leaders. It's actually advantageous to you. The writer of Hebrews says, Obey those who have the rule over you and submit yourselves as those who, wait for it, watch for your souls, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that would not be advantageous to you. You want to bring life to your spiritual leaders, and I'm not just talking about pastors here, to your dad, to your mom, to your youth leader or youth leaders, to the person who is discipling you, working with you, your cell group leader, and yes, even your pastor. Let me give you two ways from this passage to give life to spiritual leaders, and then we'll take on the issue of our day. First of all, encourage them with your love. I mean, you can't help but see this in the text. He is so, Paul is so just effervescing with joy over the love of the Thessalonians, both for God, for gospel, and for him. It might, by the way, young person, it might come as a shock to you, but your mom could use a hug once in a while. Go ahead, if you're watching online, just go ahead and hug your mom. Your dad could use a thank you once in a while. And yeah, your pastor could even use a blessing from time to time. In verse 6, Paul says, look what he says. He says in verse 6, he says, Timothy's coming, he's brought us, look at this, the good news of your faith. That's the word eongalion. It's the only time Paul uses this expression, not directly referring to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It literally means to preach the gospel. What he's saying is the news of the Thessalonians going on in their faith was like the gospel being brought to him. That's powerful stuff. He, this is enlivening him. It's giving him life. The word comforted in verse 7. See that there? That's the word parakaleo. Para is the prefix alongside. Kaleo means to call. It literally carries the idea of coming close to somebody, purposely so to encourage them, to bless them. That's the idea. Just the other day, I was, I was in the Merle Hay area. I was driving, and there was, I was at a stop sign, and across the intersection at the other medium was a, was a beggar. I'd not seen this one before. And it's my um, tradition. I always keep a little cash on hand to help them out because truthfully, to be honest, whether these beggars have a Lexus around the corner or not doesn't really matter to me. The fact that you would do something so abjectly humiliating to me says, you got to give that guy something. Give that girl something. So, but I was at the intersection, and there was a car behind me, so I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to cause an accident, so I gave him a little beep, and he looked over, he saw me, and I had my little cash out the window here so that I, the person behind me would know I'd be slowing down as I got across the intersection, and I handed it to him. 
And this guy took the money, leaned right into my window, and he goes, bless you. And I really felt blessed. I, I blessed him back. I felt more blessed than he did. And I thought of Solomon who said, a word spoken at just the right time. How good is it? How good is it? The other day, my wife and I had our neighbors over. They're a, just a lovely little Christian family. They love the Lord. And, but we, we, so we got to talk with them and hear their stories. He had an amazing testimony. He was not raised in a Christian home. In fact, he, 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 uh, he's one of the operators of a particular business. And uh, he had a guy working with him who was a fervent witness. But he went on to another job of like a like job, but he was leaving. But before he left, he told the story, This our neighbor. The guy who left gave him his own personal Bible. And that was the very conduit by which he came to know Christ as his Savior. And he's going on raising his family for God. And I thought to myself, I hope he's expressing his love and gratitude to that man. Because if he would, that would give him life. Not salvation life. You get it, right? But we all need to be enlivened from time to time. Can I get an amen to that? Sure. You want to give life to your spiritual leaders? Encourage them with your love. And then, and then most importantly, and again, right out of the text, stand firm with them in your faith. This is what Paul says. This is what enlivened Paul, the fact that they were standing firm in the faith. And here, here Paul virtually mirrors what John will say later on when John says, I have no greater joy than when my children, what? Walk in truth, right? No greater joy than when my children walk in truth. Of course, the antithesis of that is also true. I have no greater sorrow than when my children walk in error. R.W. Dale was a great preacher Congregationalist preacher in the middle 1800s. And uh, when he took over this church, he embarked in a series of Bible doctrine. <laughs> One of his critics said, he, he said, they, he said, they won't, that your people, you'll bore them to death. They won't take it. And I loved his reply. He says, they'll have to take it. And they did for over 50 years. And he built up a mighty church with sound doctrine, with the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's what we preach here at Sailorville Church, the whole counsel of God. We're not going to shy from anything. We want to preach the faith once and for all delivered, as Jude puts it. Not so that you'll feel good, but that you'll be built good. Not that you're known for standing you know, out for defending your politics, but that you're standing firm in your faith. And when you respond rightly to the word of God, when you grow in humility and love and power and boldness in your faith, that makes me come alive. It makes all spiritual leaders come alive. And by the way, when Paul would rewrite these Thessalonians in the second book of Thessalonians, look how he begins. He says, we Give thanks to God for you because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. When your faith is growing and your love is showing, I live. We live. Your spiritual leaders live.
And more importantly, and most importantly, God is glorified. Now, we're not told specifically, exactly, with every nuance, what the Thessalonians or how the Thessalonians were being persecuted, as with Paul. Obviously, it was for the gospel. But know this. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. When God tries our faith, he does it to develop us, not to destroy us. If your test has destroyed you, it is because your faith has fooled you. Solomon said that in Proverbs 24, verse 10. He says, he says, if I faint in the day of adversity, my strength is small. Now, we are living in a day of adversity. True? This is a test. The question before us this morning is, are you passing it? Am I passing it? The COVID-19 environment that we are now very much aware of, used to living in, has caused the church at Sailorville and, you know, countless others to make wisdom adjustments throughout and will make more. And from what I'm witnessing, not all of us are enduring well under this test. Some of the responses, quite frankly, have left us the spiritual, not perfect, because we're not leaders, scratching our heads in sadness. They haven't, they haven't given a, an enlivening effect, but a deadening effect. I think of what James said when he said, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. These are times of testing. Listen, for all of us. Most of the responses we've received have not just been encouraging, they have been over the top. Thank you. Very encouraging. Some of them have given us life. Like the one elder. Yeah, elder. Frustrated all, over, over all the fake news and, and so-called science, and yet agreed with 16 men, elders and Spiritual directors and spiritual leaders all coming together with heads and hearts, praying, thinking, planning over this, and coming to this decision that this was the right and godly thing to do. And one of our deacons, yes, one of our deacons, can you imagine? We're not all just, you know, walking in lockstep here. One of our deacons, same thing. Why am I telling you this? Because... We're human. We all have a take. I have a take. I just don't bleed it all over you all the time. One texted the other day, gave me permission to read his text, but instead of that, I'll just, I'll just give you a synopsis of it because it, kind of, it was kind of lengthy. But he was there. He was struggling with this thing. Didn't want to do it, the mass thing. No, no, please tell me it ain't so. He says, I, I, he goes, I was literally confessing my selfish, self-centered, worldly thinking. Confess it to God, and now how I support my leaders. It was very, very enlivening. We live when this kind of stuff happens. Now, speaking of science, referred to a moment earlier, it might 
surprise you to know that while the Bible is not a scientific book, it has a lot of science in it, and God is never wrong. Amen? Even in the New Testament, in his pastoral epistle, as he wraps things up, Paul feels like he's got to lay down, by the Spirit of God, he's got to lay down a little caveat to Timothy. When he says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit, that's the truth of God, entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions. The word contradiction is the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. It's literally the Greek word antithesis. We get the English word. It means opposite. Contradictions are antithesis of what is falsely called knowledge. If you're rocking an old King James, the word knowledge is translated science. Because truthfully, if, you, if we understand science, science is knowledge. Real science is real knowledge. True science is true knowledge. And it's not just knowledge, it's, it's experiential knowledge. That's what science produces, real truth on a given subject. Paul is clearly warning Timothy here against buying into so-called science or knowledge of those who claim such but are really leading others astray. That seems serious enough, doesn't it? Would you agree? Now, here's the thought that God brought me as I was meditating on. This is the thought God hit me with. We were created to be persuaded. Remember that. We were created to be persuaded. You say created? Yeah. Even Adam and Eve in the garden, in perfection, were persuadable. Think about that. So if we were created to be persuaded, and if that's a truism, then it begs the question, and oft repeated so, who are you listening to? Who am I listening to? For the very first time, in my pastoral life, the church has been faced with the decision whether or not to obey a government mandate that affects the way we worship. Now, remind you, very early on, we declared, again, the law of love trumps the law of liberty. Let's say that together. The law of love trumps the law of liberty. And that short of asking us to violate our conscience, we stated clearly that we would be obedient, as 1 Timothy 2 tells us, as Romans 13 tells us, as 1 Peter 2 tells us, to our governing authorities, unless they violate our conscience. Remember the PPP? And all that money that was afforded businesses and churches and churches galore were taking the monies by the hundreds of thousands, and we got in on it. Got a couple of hundred thousand dollars our way, and then our consciences bothered us. How can we do this? We have money. We gave it back. Again, the question. Who are you listening to? Because we were created to be persuaded. Consider the many layers of persuasion in this whole COVID thing. I mean, there are a multitude of layers that impact the way you think, the way you live, the way you conduct yourself, sometimes your attitude, 
oftentimes your attitude. This is not complete, but these are the layers that I came up with. First of all, preconceptions. These are personal biases that we have, bents of things we already believe, right? We all have them, right? That's a layer. Observations, as we look around and see what's happening in the United States of America, we look around the world and we see how they're handling this crisis, that's a layer. Personal experience. Personal experience is a layer, isn't it? Right? Anybody here got COVID yet? Our family's gotten it. I got it, was sick for three or four days and got over it. My brother Steve got it. He was hospitalized on oxygen for two weeks after he got out of the hospital, still suffering a month later from the effects of COVID. Our son John got it, sneezed twice and got over it. We all have a personal experience. It's a layer. Someone says, yeah, but did you know my uncle died? I just heard of somebody an hour ago, somebody I know and love, a teacher in our area from a Christian school whose relative is hanging, their life is hanging in the balance right now because of getting COVID. We all have our layers. There's the virus itself, the contagiousness of it, the spread and results, the mounting statistics. Are they real? It's a layer. The fear, the real fear, the natural reaction of the aged. Those of you watching online who've been gone for nearly a year now, my heart goes out to you. And those who are, have health-related issues, you're compromised. You can't come. We get it. And then there's those of you who just don't trust the science out there. It's created fear. We understand. You're not being condemned in no way, shape, or form. And then the most maddening layer for me is the exploitation of the exceptions. You know what I'm talking about here? Despite the, you know, the, the statistics that we have that young people are either impervious or they're just mildly affected by this, yet when the less than 1% are hospitalized or worse, die, it's exploited. That's maddening to me, but it's a layer. The politicalization of the matter, when some, not all, politicians do the bidding of their party rather than speaking from their heart and their head on the matter. And then there are those personalities, those persuaders that speak and write with a, thus saith the Lord, and we just follow them. Some of them are demagogues, just leading us astray. That's a layer. Personalities are a layer. A ninth one is knowledge. Surface knowledge, you know, I believe it because I watched the news last night. The I know a guy knowledge, you know, I know a guy. He's really smart. And he knows a guy whose cousin's sister's second, you know, brother is like, you know, worked for the Pentagon who had a guy who had a doctor friend, and I know this guy. There's the educated knowledge. You know, that's, that's the, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a scientist. So my view trumps yours, obviously. There's the well-studied knowledge that says, I've gone deeper. I'm looking at all the primary sources, and I'm more qualified than you are on this issue. 
And then finally, there's the science. At the end of the day, science is the ultimate layer, isn't it? I mean, this is the big one. And the presumption is, when science speaks, the argument is over. But remember, true science, because we have to have an adjective now, on a given topic requires time and all of the rigors of testing and repetition, repetition, repetition of empirical evidence. And the results, when it comes to a virus, usually takes years. We've had about 10 months. So here's what I'd like to say before I just speak to you pastorally. For Jesus' sake, I'm asking everyone here to ask yourself, and don't write these things down. You can take a screenshot when they're all up there. For Jesus' sake, ask yourself, whose voices am I listening to? Are you listening to God? Remember, we were created to be persuaded. What issues am I willing to die for? Is this really one of them? What inconveniences am I willing to tolerate? Could this be one of them? And I want you to pay special attention to this. What message am I conveying to the world around me? Because they're watching. They're watching. Our social media guru has, has informed us that on social media, one of the biggest angst is unbelievers talking about Christians taking advantage of their exemptions. Just the other day, I talked with Tyler Betts, our missionary to France. Do you realize how battened down they are in France? He can't even leave his apartment without a special slip of permission. He said to me, he said, Pastor, he says, it's that way everywhere around here. But if you get outside and go to a park and it's just you or you and your wife, then you can take your mask off. They're not frowning too much on that. So he, he said, Pastor, so I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I can't wait to get out there and get his mask off. So he, he went outside, had his mask off because he's outside. And there's an older guy in his apartment that he's been trying to witness to. Tell about Jesus, who saw him. And he looked at Tyler. Tyler said, he looked at me and went. He said, Pastor, I felt like I lost an opportunity right there. They're watching. Remember what Paul said to the Romans? So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The world's watching. What does love for God and others require of me? What does your love for God and others require of you? What eternal difference will it make if you don't get your way? What eternal difference will it make if I don't get my way? Again, to those liberty-flaunting Corinthians, the Apostle Paul asked this question, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And finally, what am I currently doing to advance the gospel in these perilous days? That's not incongruent to this message. Because those who are on the front lines trying to win people to Jesus, they see 
things differently. They have a different perspective. And so what I want to do for the balance of our time is just speak to you pastorally, if I may. Weeks ago, you might remember that I commended our governor and John MacArthur, the famous Bible expositor in in, uh, California. Some people didn't like that. Some of you don't like the governor's mandate. I don't know if any of us like the mandate, but we might see it as necessary for now, temporarily. Can I just say something to you about our governor? You and I have no idea what she's been going through, the pressure that's on that woman. None whatsoever. Pray for her as we're instructed to do. And as for John MacArthur, he is a hero of mine and always will. But I don't take my cues from John MacArthur. And by the way, don't compare, please. It's laughable. There are people that are actually comparing what we're going through with what Grace Church in California is going through. That is a laughable comparison. The the government overreach to John MacArthur is insane. What we're going through does not hold a candle to what they have endured. You're being asked for the time being to temporarily wear a mask when you worship. We're not telling you what to do outside of here. A mask. You're not being told to stay home. Not told you can't come to church. Not told you can't sing. Not told you can't witness to lost people outside the church. And Christian, you are witnessing to lost people, aren't you? Not being told to wear a sign that says you're a worthless Christian. Government isn't threatening to throw you in jail for your faith. By the way, besides those among us who are convinced that mask wearing helps, do you know who else is not complaining about this? About this mandate? Outsiders. Those who don't know Jesus. And, and those who are seeking to know the truth. They're not, they're not questioning this. They're not complaining about it. How do I know that? Because just the other day, just three days ago, my wife and I had a beautiful young couple in our home who are seeking to know the truth, what it really means to have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. They've only been in the church for a couple of weeks. Probably will be here today. And at the end of our very first study, knowing the new mandate, knowing what the church said, they stood up and they said, we could stay here for a long time, but we'll see you on Sunday and we'll have our mask on. Wow. Out of the mouth of babes, huh? Look, if the government tells us we can't meet, we can't worship, we can't preach the gospel, we can't give the gospel publicly, we will declare from the rooftop, we ought to obey God rather than men. But American Christian, we have no idea what persecution looks like. 
You just heard last week in Jason's excellent message that real persecution is happening in this world. You heard that. Did you know that North Korea is the number one nation in the world with extreme persecution? And they were the only one listed as extremely persecuting six years ago. Now there are 11 where Christians are being ostracized, arrested, beaten, tortured, jailed, and killed for their faith. One day, and I'm certain of it, like the Thessalonians, we too will be genuinely persecuted. And when that happens, let's not be found with our heads hung in shame for balking over a mere and temporary inconvenience. When you're staring at a jail cell, when you're staring a jail cell in the face because of your faith, then you can rejoice in the grace that God gives you in the moment, and it will be there. The scripture affirms that. Meantime, parents, this is the time for you to talk to your children. Ready them to stand firm in the faith, and if necessary, suffer for their faith. They may die, but you will live if they live standing firm in the faith. Are you really prepared to sit down with your children and tell them that being asked to wear a mask in church is a violation of your conscience and a form of persecution? Believe me, there are real violations coming, and this ain't one of them. So what is this? What is this? This is a test. Like the emergency broadcast system that occasionally alerts us with those annoying, blaring, one-minute sounds that we can't wait to be over. This is a test. I know the sound is annoying. I know the requirements are maddening. I get it. But whether you buy into the science of, of mask wearing or believe it's purely symbolic and not necessary, that's not the issue nor what's at stake. This is your test. This is my test. This is our test. God help us to pass it.